Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim. I am your host. And Brad is with us today uh, and has coffee, which means he's doing one better than me because mine's empty. Uh, oh, you guys are both doing better than me. Uh, we are joined by Brad Jerzak, a regular guest, a friend of the podcast, and by dad. I call him dad. You can call him Steve. Uh, today we are Entering into our third and final discussion on the work of the cross, uh, if you've been following along on the podcast so far, uh, we have been doing this kind of mini-series uh, inside of our Mystery of Christ series on the work of the cross, what happened on the cross, uh, some theological traditions of uh, what what was accomplished on the cross, how it was accomplished. And this week, in our in our final discussion on the work of the cross, we are talking about uh, Christ's descent into hell and what that means, um, where some of some of this comes from uh, scripturally and and just through traditions of the church fathers and stuff. So, welcome, Brad. I'm really looking forward to uh, this discussion. Glad to be here. Um, yeah, good to be with you, Brad. Brad, before we get into the actual uh, discussion of what what happened when Christ descended into hell. I wondered if you could answer a question for me that's been rumbling around in me actually for probably about 15 years or so. Um, and I, I thought about it again yesterday. Uh, I was re-listening to last week's teaching about uh, the descent into hell and stuff. And there was so much talk of the church fathers that, I mean, if you've been paying any attention to dad's teaching in the last year, you know, he's just been geeking out on the church fathers. Um, a geeking out on yeah, the church exactly. fathers. Yeah, exactly. Thank hey, you. There's a, there's a title right there for a podcast. Um, my question is this. We have had the scriptures since the beginning of the church. Uh, the church fathers came along and began interpreting those scriptures my question is, why should we give more weight to the church fathers and what they had to say versus later theologians and writers? Um, I, I guess it seems to me that in Orthodoxy, uh, perhaps in Roman Catholicism as well, there's a great deal of weight put on, on tradition, uh, which comes from the church fathers, uh, and less weight put on the church fathers and tradition in the Protestant movement and evangelical movement. For those of us who are coming from a Protestant and evangelical background, why should we give weight to those who came after the scriptures were canonized? That's a great question. And it's also a horrible question. Perfect. Um, I only mean it that it's horrible in the sense of what the question hides. Mm. So, First of all, it's a great question because on the surface, it can look like we've got a Bible and we've got church fathers, which is inspired. The Bible's inspired. So why would we give more weight to the church fathers? In fact, why would we care about what they said at all when we have the Bible? That's a way of asking it. And in fact, if that were just on the surface true, if if there's nothing hidden in there, that's a really valid point. Scripture is inspired, and, and the church fathers are merely witnesses to that. To, to that. But, but here's why it can be a horrible question. Here's what it hides. First of all, it pretends we're not dependent on the church fathers, even though we've never read them. If you say you believe in the Trinity, 
you're absolutely dependent on an interpretation by the church fathers who came up with the word and noticed the idea in the scriptures. Um, you're absolutely dependent on the church fathers for the full deity of Christ and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And even more than that, it's the church fathers who collected the New Testament and determined what would be in it and what would not be in it. So there is the fact that you have a New Testament shows that unwittingly you are already dependent on the fathers for your scriptures, for your doctrine of the deity of Christ and your doctrine of the Trinity and so on. So that's a way we're already dependent on them. But um, there's a second thing hidden in there. In pretending I can go straight to the scriptures as if I have no interpretive lens, I'm self-deceiving there. I'm not just going to the Bible. I'm going to the Bible with a method of interpretation. So here would be another way of framing it. Why would I read the Bible with the church father's method of interpretation versus uh, 19th century modernism's interpretation of the Bible? In other words, you don't get to go, just go to the Bible. You've inherited a way of reading it. My point then is that the fathers teach us how to read it in a way that is lost and a way that a lot is lost by um, modern ways of reading it. So when I read the, the Bible through modern eyes, I'm more, I, what I'm actually doing is that's where I'm putting my authority on modernist assumptions. And I'm like, well, that's interesting because the people who gathered the Bible and came up with the doctrine of the Trinity had different assumptions and they got them, they inherited them from the apostles. So, so now I'm like, I better learn how these early fathers read the Bible um, because their way of reading it um, may keep me out of trouble. And then one very clear example of that would be this. The modern way of reading it is really obsessed with literalism. Well, in the early church, we had literalists too. And they read Colossians chapter 1 literally in that sense and concluded that Jesus was not fully God, that Jesus was a secondary creation of God. That's where literalism gets you. If you don't believe that, if you you know, then 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 good. <laughs> you know, you 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 probably picked something up. You've inherited something from the fathers that was helpful, but you would not have got there through literalism. And yet now modernism says, no, no, you got to read it literally. It's like, well, you want to go back there? Well, we've gone back there and it's been problematic to the point where people who read it literally as in, you know, hell's a literal lake of fire. Jesus, God literally commanded genocide. Well, they're just throwing the Bible out now. And I'm like, well, that, that was bad fruit. So maybe if we would pay attention to how the early fathers read the Bible, we'd actually find out it's more glorious and beautiful and Christ-centered and gospel-pointed um, than, than what we've experienced. So that's my angle on it. So the summary was, we do depend on them. We just didn't know it. And when we, and when we don't depend on them, we're depending not on the Bible, but on modernism. And that, that's a problem. That makes sense? I think it does, yeah. So I think really what you're saying also is that it, it's impossible to read the Bible without reading it through some lens. 
So why not go back to the earliest lens that we can access that's closest to the original source material uh, in terms of its its uh, context, its literal context, its uh, geographical context, its um, so that we're we're gaining we're reading it through the eyes of those who were living in a much more similar culture uh, when the Bible was written to begin with. That's exactly right, and and that to pretend I can open my Bible with no lens is is deception. I I absolutely will have a lens. Not knowing you have one is is a serious issue. So pick a good one. <laughs> hmm. You know, I got asked the other day. Uh, in response to what I was teaching on the descent is, well, why would they, why would the church fathers have written so much when there's really just a few verses? Well, <clears throat> first of all, I think there's a lot more than a few verses, but they're going classically to, you know, first Peter three and, uh, and four. But I, I said this and, and Brad, you can correct this or augment this. I said that we forget that we live in a time of close to 100% literacy. At the time of Christ in the Roman Empire, it was about 5% who were literate. Likely, the majority of the apostles were not literate. And, and yet, does that mean people were dumber? Absolutely not. The transfer of information was an oral tradition. I think they were probably much better listeners than we were. And so when I look at the church fathers, I think of, of Clement, who, you know, was in Rome, would have, would have learned from Paul. I, I think of uh, Ignatius, uh, an early church father who I, I love his stuff, uh, who was a direct disciple of John. So in other words, Ignatius isn't just writing out of what he's read in the scripture, which of course he is, but it's also of, of who knows how many years and hours uh, sitting with John and learning from the one who was the original witness. And then, of course, he passes it on. And, and even when you get to Irenaeus late in the, in the century, um, Brad, I think about 175 or so, but he too was in that tradition that had been passed on. I just felt, I, I shared that with somebody the other day and the lights went on for them. Um, that uh, That's another reason why I think we need to hold true to the uh, the teachings and the traditions of the church fathers. Yep, very good. Excuse me, sorry, my microphone was muted. Um, let's get into the literal versus a uh, parable or, or metaphor and such. Uh, a question was sent in regarding the, uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Dad, in your teaching, you, you said really the context of that parable should, is really more about the first shall be last. Um, and somebody's arguing that it seems entirely about the nature of Hades and its relationship to heaven. Uh, if the nature of Hades relation to heaven changed just a few years after Christ's death, why did he bother with this parable and why is it still in the Bible? And Brad, I guess I'm, I'll direct that question to you. Yeah, we, I, well, <laughs> he told it because, because your dad is right. Um, there are, 
there are three contexts for that parable. The first context is Jesus' immediate listeners. All right. So Jesus is talking and he's talking to Pharisees and the text itself gives you the context, which is Pharisees loved money. And in the gospel of Luke, all throughout the gospel of Luke, there is this warning of a great reversal of the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless. And it starts with Mary's song, the Magnificat. He's going to pull down the mighty from their thrones and he's going to raise up those who've been marginalized and broken. And then you get, you, you move along and you get into this series of parables and all of the parables are about that reversal. It's like, if you love money, watch out. If you, if you are poor, take heart. And so it's, it's not, so to read that in isolation out of the immediate context of Jesus teachings around Poverty versus riches. Um, that's what the parable is about when he's talking. But there's a second context. Luke is writing for a community. And now he's writing at a time when he's on Paul's team. And the big issue is not rich versus poor for them. It's Jew versus Gentile. And there's a warning that there's going to be a great reversal there as well. So for the Judaizers, it's like, be careful because you might end up on the outside and the Gentiles are going to have a privileged place at the table. What? You know, that appears in, in Luke's writing. And so that's, let's say this is 20 years later, 30 years later, he's got a different audience than Jesus did. Jesus audience was fair, rich Pharisees. Luke's audience is Jews and Gentiles that they're trying to bring together in union. And the hints are in the parable. Lazarus is the Greek word for Eleazar. Eleazar was the Gentile servant of Abraham who lost his entire inheritance when he helped Isaac get, you know, Isaac come. Yeah. So what's going to happen? And, and so what's going to happen? Here's Eleazar in Abraham's bosom now. And the rich man who has five brothers, that's not a mistake. Guess who had five brothers? Judah. They're in Judea. They're, it's, it's, and, and now... Judah, the, the insider um, pure blood Jew is now on the outside, and here's the Gentile on the inside. Be, beware of this. So, so then that's the second context. Um, it's a reversal again. And then the third context is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pope Benedict XVI said this the punchline of every parable, especially this one, is Christ's conquest of Hades. So, it's all there in the parable again. I'm not making this up. It's in the text. You have to read the text. Christ has crossed the uncrossable chasm. Christ has returned from where no one can return. Christ has entered and conquered the unconquerable place, you know. And so, so then that becomes, so why share that parable? Well, Jesus shared it because he's dealing with the reversal of rich and poor. Luke wrote it because he's dealing with the reversal of Jew and Gentile. But ultimately, we are not even welcome into that parable without reference to the conquest of Hades. So um, that's, how I, that's how I read it. I look at all three layers, and it's an essential parable. But what it's not about is sort of the nature of Hades. It's, if anything, that with Luke himself in, includes this idea that the resurrection has forever changed that. And so... Um, um, that's good for, that's important revelation for us. So it, coming back to the kind of literal versus metaphor, 
is every time Jesus is referring to being cast out uh, into the Gehenna, uh, into the fiery furnace, uh, I think of phrases like weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, yeah. Is that is that always just metaphor? There's a really good, very short video on YouTube that people should probably watch after we're off. It's N.T. Wright and Pete Enns. And the title, it's like um, four and a half minutes long. And it is, what do you mean by literal? <laughs> so we get confused about what literal even means. What literal, what literal actually means is um, how words are used to describe something. So you could say, uh, I'm speaking literally or metaphorically. Um, and then, but, but we often will use it as concrete versus abstract. So what N.T. Wright does is he says, okay, um, I refer to my car as an old tin can. <laughs> so he's using a metaphor to describe a physical object, but you can do the opposite too. So um, uh, when, when we speak about Gehenna, Initially, that's the, that's the valley south of Jerusalem where the bodies were dumped after Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Um, in Jeremiah is prophesying about this. So it's an, it's an actual place. So what we, when we say literal, what we usually mean is actual. It's an actual place south of Jerusalem being used as a metaphor for a real condition of destruction, whatever that looks like. So I'm going through hell right now. You could say that, right? What am I doing there? I'm using a, a literal place that it once existed. Now it's a park. And I'm using the, the metaphor. I'm using it metaphorically a, a, around the word destruction. And now I'm applying it to my actual state of being. So you see how confusing it can get. So when you read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, do you take it literally? It's like, well, I don't know. Will we all be in Abraham's bosom? Think about it. One billion Christians in a giant bosom in an old man. Okay, okay. We'll take that literally, right? Um, his tongue is parched. Oh, wait a minute. He's dead. Where's his tongue? Well, his, his tongue is worm food. So, I mean, the whole thing is, it's a parable. It's a parable, but it's a, it's a dire warning of something. So what we want to do is we want to say, of course, we take words like Gehenna and Hades and fire. We take them seriously. We read them metaphorically, but that doesn't empty them. It's a real, it's a real warning. And I want to use the parable rich man and Lazarus. Scott McKnight is brilliant on this. He said this, you don't get to choose who you are in the parable. You are the rich man, period. The question isn't, who are you? Or are you a poor man? Of course you're not the poor man. You're the rich man. Here's the question then, in light of the warning. Um, who's the poor man at your gates, and how will you care for him? Oh, brilliant. And that's, and that's impact nations. You are the rich man, Steve. You don't get to be the poor man, but you get to use your privilege to ask yourself, who, are, who is Lazarus in my life? And you've taken the parable seriously enough to go all the way to Africa and India and take teams all over the world 
And, and that's the point of the parable. And to make it about the nature of Hades is to so utterly miss the point that you are in danger of the warnings that it's giving. Sure. Not preaching. Sorry, man. No, you're doing great. And uh, over the years, we've discussed, and I've sat in a church and heard you talk about this parable, and every time I see more lights going on for me. So thank you. Keep Pleasure. talking about that parable. Okay. <laughs> um, another question, just a really interesting question, actually, uh, that came in from a listener was, who gave Satan ownership of Hades and why? What does that even mean? Hey? So what is Hades? Hades is a borrow word from Greek mythology for both the place of the dead and the one running the place of the dead. Hades was a demigod or a small g god running the, the, the Greek, and he's in the Greek pantheon of gods running this place. Why, why, did, why did the Jews use that word to, <laughs> to come along? What did they mean by that? Um, who... And, and so the question then is like, how, did, how does, who gave Satan ownership of that? Well, what does it represent? It's a metaphor. So Hades is a metaphor for death and the fear of death. Death as non-being or death as, as gloom, death as despair. And Hades isn't just about the afterlife. It's wherever death is at work in my life and the fear of death. So Hebrews 2 says that Christ became human so that he could so that he could, he can die and conquer death and the fear of death through which Satan held us in bondage all of our lives. So it's not so much what do we mean who gave who gave Satan the reign over this place it's more like this. Satan reigns wherever death has its hold on me. If I am afraid of, if I have death anxiety or if I'm in death denial, that is an open door for, um, uh, for temptation in me. It's a vulnerability in me that the accuser can come and terrify me. And, and then it ignites me into all sorts of weird kind of behaviors. So how does, how does Satan rule over Hades? Well, it's, it's the idea that, that um, if you treat Hades or hell as like a king, the kingdom where death has the final word. If death has the final word for you, the enemy has an open door to manipulate you and run your life. But when you find out that Christ has conquered Hades, that is, he has removed the power of death and the fear of death from you, and death is now just a doorway to the kingdom of God, then, then you, you're not afraid anymore. The enemy can't rule over you with fear can't manipulate you with death anxiety or death denial. So, so what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm saying, let's move out of that, out of the metaphor into the, what it looks like in actual life. If you're terrified of dying and you are hoarding your stuff and you are clinging um, with attachments to all the things in this world, cause you don't want to lose them. Or let's say even your reputation and your legacy, it, you just do all sorts of horrible things. And that's 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 how Satan rules over Hades in, in that sense. Now, do you believe um, 
let's talk, we're back to that word literal, which we'll say actual. Uh, on Holy Saturday, yep. uh, I certainly believe that Christ went to the place of Sheol or, or Hades. You heard me say that in the teaching last week, and that there was a literal liberty and freeing. I think we get a, a little piece of that with the, the 500 or so who were seen in Jerusalem. Uh, are you and I, are, are we on the same page on that? Yeah, largely, I think the idea is something actual happened. What happened? Well, Christ died and Christ rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, others rose from the dead and all will rise from the dead. Mm -hmm. Were they in a place? Well, we use that language so that we can imagine the reality. But is the reality a fiery place under the earth? No. Well, where is it? I don't know. Maybe it's not a place at all. It's a state of being. Mm -hmm. State of being was death. The new state of being is resurrection. Did, how did that happen? Christ died and came back to life um, and brought others with him. So we imagine that using metaphors that Jesus himself gave us. Mm -hmm. This is where a lot of the Christus Victor language comes from, that he goes into the, that he binds the strong man, yep. enters his house, plunders his goods, exit the house, and now apparently has burned down the house. <laughs> but but that that's all metaphors, right? There's not an actual house somewhere, and he didn't use ropes or chains or what. But what he's done is he's taken away the authority of the the, uh, the authority of yeah uh, of death over us. Death no longer reigns. That's the point. That's the actuality. Good. Thanks, Dad. You that you defined uh, Hades or Gehenna as a waiting place at one point when you were teaching. Um, and so my question is, was it only a waiting place until Christ went and took the keys? Uh, or is that still a waiting place? Are people, you know, we talk, let's just, the way people talk uh, in 21st century culture is, you know, either you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. And, you know, you go to a funeral and there's always murmur, you know, well, I think they're in a better place or I don't know if they made it. Uh, <laughs> so my question is, is that still a waiting place, uh, Brad, or is, is it, uh, what's happening there? Is, is it, does, is it even still a place? Yeah. <laughs> You're, like we're we're really getting tangled in the metaphors, aren't we? Because we're using things like place, we're using waiting as if there's linear time in that place. And I guess I guess the I if we want to if we want to talk about it, we have to use those metaphors. So it 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 appears to me that that we that we have multiple metaphors going on in the bible some of those treat it like the place is gone the meat the waiting place is gone it's destroyed other places it seems like well no maybe there's still some waiting there um what are we waiting for the final resurrection so that that's fair there's seems to be a sense of that we're conscious that the those who've departed are in some sort of conscious presence with with the lord 
and uh, they're awaiting the final resurrection. So there's waiting again, right? Mm. It's so hard to talk about these things because they are a real mystery. So the way we talk about ineffable mysteries is that we use these kind of metaphors and the metaphor, it's okay if the metaphors conflict because each metaphor is talking about something different. So, so it sometimes the Bible, we use a metaphor of that people go into outer darkness, like away. And then other times it's like, there is no away. Christ is everywhere. Well, which is it? Well, we're talking about two different things. Outer darkness is we'll experience alienation. Christ is never a way that we experience union. Both are true. But we so we create story worlds to help us talk about the mystery. That's not a problem. The problem is literalizing the story world, or you end up having sheep and goats instead of people at the final judgment. And you have a bunch of people inside of Abraham's bosom. And all so don't literalize the metaphors, but we 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 do use them. The question then is always, what is the truth the metaphor is telling us? The truth the metaphor is telling us is that Christ is one. That Christ gets the last word. That love is more powerful than death. And it wasn't just two or three verses that that Steve was quoting in in last week's lesson. Oh my goodness, that was outrageous. It this permeates the scriptures. Yeah. If you know how to read them. And the apostles and their disciples knew how to read them and then wrote prolific hymns about what they were reading. That sounded evasive but maybe in, in some way. <laughs> but but yeah, I'm just saying we use metaphors to describe truths. Don't literalize the metaphors, but don't empty them either. Oh, that's good. Tweet that, Steve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a fine balance, though, isn't it? It is. Um, can I, I want to just give you two, and th these are one sentence each. These are hymns from the early church where you can see how they're working with the metaphors to tell you a truth about the victory of Jesus. Here's one. When thou didst go into the womb of the earth, there's a metaphor. So he dies, his tomb is now a womb. The womb of the earth with thy soul. Well, did his soul really go into the earth? Does his soul go? It's a metaphor. When thou didst go into the womb of the earth with thy soul, Hades gave forth with haste the souls which it possessed. So there it's using Hades not as a place, but as a god, small g. This god, Hades, as soon as Christ goes, his soul goes into the womb of the earth, Hades hurries to give over the souls that it had possessed, which cried unto thy might a song of thanksgiving, O only Lord. So all of the souls that Hades had possessed are now crying out in, in praise because the Lord has come down to get them. That's an amazing little song. And then, and what's the result of that? Here's, here's this kind of hymn is called the Traparia. Now are all things filled with light, heaven and earth and the nethermost regions of the earth. That's a metaphor for Hades, which is a metaphor for death. 
So all things are now filled with light, heaven, earth, and under the earth. Let all creation, therefore, celebrate the arising of Christ, whereby it is established. Oh, my goodness. So this is the beauty of, of how the early church read the, read the resurrection then back into anything they knew about the netherworld. That it has been conquered and filled with light and it's given up the souls that it had possessed. And we're meant to rejoice in this. What I believe is in the West, we lost this whole tradition almost completely. Yeah. And why did we lose it almost completely? We didn't just forget. It was covered up. And it was covered up because it was inconvenient for our theology of hell with which we controlled people. Those are inconvenient statements if you want to hold the threat of hell over people. So you better behave and you better obey us and you better get with the system or else. Well, if you have these, if you have these hymns every Sunday, like we do every Sunday in, in the Orthodox Church, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. If you have, that's, that's a very inconvenient good news for controlling people who use fear to control others. So I think, I think at some point it, um, it was we they were deliberately set aside because it just didn't work with our system. And why do you think is it still? It's because the system hasn't changed. Then that that still in in much of evangelicalism, certainly in the Reformed tradition, Holy Saturday is just not talked about. It's written off. Uh, Calvin called it a fable. Um, you think it goes back to that issue of uh, fear and control, which is a medieval kind of uh, position, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's hanging on to the binary of in and out, us and them, righteous and wicked, and 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 then and it's also like moral leverage. And so, I don't entirely disagree with the use of threat rhetoric jesus does it with his parables <laughs> but what's what's his point his point is not about the nature of the afterlife his point is always about i i'm going to i'm going to show you the seriousness of your uh of moral choices around injustice this is really serious so you've got someone like pope francis when he's preaching to the world, it's very winsome, and he almost sounds like a universalist. But when he's preaching to mafia bosses who are being godfathers for children that they will raise to kill others, he just tells them, look it, you're, go you're going to hell. <laughs> He'll just say that. <laughs> and Like, why do you do that? It's because he's, it's, it's an effort to show the moral gravity of injustice and putting your foot on other people in this world. And so you use heavily laden threat rhetoric to do it. And it doesn't sound like good news. And it's, and, but they, the people who heard this, they understood how to hear. <laughs> they knew, they knew the difference between those kind of injunctions that are pretty scary and the gospel, which trumps it. Mercy triumphs over judgment, but there is a judgment. So is and there so still believe... a place, Brad, for um, for using that kind of language? Like, is there still a place for uh, using the, let's say, the threat of hell, so to speak? I'm, 
I'm in a tension about that because I think if Christ did it and early church fathers like John Chrysostom certainly did it, despite the good news, then it seems like there's a place for it with, with, with um, belligerent people who live daily in, in hubris and injustice. If, if they can't hear good news, that's one side of the, the, the tension. The other side of the tension is this, is perfect love drives out fear. So why am I using fear as a means of communicating the gospel? Well, it's not when I'm communicating the gospel. It's when I'm communicating the, the dire consequences of, of, of injustice in this world. So I, I, I'm like, yeah, but the means don't justify the ends. So I suppose the way I would talk about the place for for that kind of rhetoric is never in the preaching of the gospel to unbelievers. In the preaching of gospel to unbelievers, so-called, we are always talking about the good news, news of Jesus Christ and that his union with you means that everything can change once you see it. So I would have a, I would, I would have zero threat language and you in, in my gospel presentation. Be, and in fact, that's how it works in the book of acts. Every time they preach the gospel, it's, it's not about, mm-hmm. they never talk about hell once, not nope. once. That's not part of the impetus. So then when do you use that language? You Chrysostom tells you with believers <laughs> in the church, when they when they are acting as hypocrites who are putting heavy weights on other people and they're they're perpetrating injustice even in the name of Jesus, then you pull up then you pull out those guns. And so, I'll give you one example of how I've used it. Um, sometimes I will have accusers come on and and let's say on social media, and they will say you are going to hell because you don't believe in hell. And I'm like, a I do believe in hell. B, you've just committed slander, and we know where slanderers go, don't we? (laughs) And then I give them the Bible verse. Slanderers go to hell. So you're going to hell because you slandered me for saying I don't believe in hell. Uh, So what am I doing there? I'm talking, it's an in-house thing where I'm I'm using the weight of of the argument to come on a moral issue like slander, it's meant to discredit and, and remove me. I mean, these guys, they literally said, we're coming after you. It's like, okay, well, then, then I guess I believe in hell again, because you're definitely going there. You know, like, but they know I don't believe that. Nobody, but I use the language, right, to, to kind of um, pu- push back at, at something that I regard as immoral. Hmm. There you go. so when you say it though what like so you joke okay well we know where slanderers go yeah but if it's not a physical place i still am confused (laughs) okay so where do slanderers go actually slanderers and everybody including me will stand before the judgment seat of christ and give an account for every word and every act the Bible scriptures warns us of that. It will be a great and terrible day. And so I'm not saying they're going to a lake of fire forever. I'm saying that they will give, they, they will stand before the judge and ha- happily that judgment in my, I regard that as a truth and reconciliation commission before a judge who is infinite mercy. Hmm. So it's in the end, it's good news, but you pass through the fire, the cleansing fire. 
So I'm like, will you go to hell? Absolutely. But I'm regarding hell as the cleansing fire of the presence of God. Okay. So through whom we'll be cleansed so, and reconciled. Yeah. But let me let me bring it back to something Jesus said that mm-hmm. you know I'm, I'm understanding there's lots of metaphor layered in here but in Luke 13 uh, <laughs> he's saying strive to enter through the narrow door and he talks about uh, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying open the door um, then he will answer you I don't know where you come from And you'll say, hey, we ate and drank in your presence and taught in your streets. And he'll say, I tell you, I don't even know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Uh, And that's, we're back to the gnashing of teeth, of course. uh, Teeth will be provided. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But when he says, depart from me, what, what part of that, uh, judgment, if, if hell is the, is the refining judgment of God, where does depart from me f- fall into that? Depart seems like a, a f- to me, a fairly final verb. Yeah. Wow, I've never seen that verse before. I guess I have to recant. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, uh, I think that that's a great example because now you've got the metaphor of a door. And like I said, you have competing metaphors in Scripture. One metaphor is that this door is shut and you're excluded. And then another metaphor is that the door is never shut and all are invited. That's Revelation 21 and 22. Which is it? I don't have to pick. (laughs) What I have to do is I have to ask, what is the truth of each of these? And how do they fit into God's economy of salvation? So I would say two things about it. So the the exclusion is, is, and the departure is about um, you, you are you are living in a delusion and an assumption that you that you were, that was very prideful and arrogant in terms of your place in the kingdom, and and you are completely wrong. And there's consequences for that. There's actually a judgment where you're humbled, where you end up outside pleading to come inside, and it's like I don't know if I'll let you inside. We'll see. <laughs> and then. And then Revelation 21 and 22, it's like, well, actually, in the end, ah, in the end, new heavens and new earth, the, the, the gates open, the spirit and the bride say, come. But you can only come in if your robes are washed in the blood of the lamb. Okay, well, then wash my robes in the blood of lamb. Okay. And then they come into the city and they come and there's, there, the, there's tree, leaves on the tree for the healing of the nations and and so there's a healing, there's a process here of, of entry, re-entry or entry. So we've got these two very different pictures. Um, what David Bentley Hart says is they're not, they're, it's not difficult. They're not in conflict. They're just in order. So we're in this present evil age. What's to come? The coming age, the age of judgment. Um, and that, that the Luke passage is about the coming age of judgment where we come before him and we go, Oh my goodness, I thought I was in and I'm out. Oh no. I mean, I'm being locked out. I'm, I'm, I'm alienated. I I was alienated and Oh no, you know, and Lord have mercy. So that's the coming age, but then the end of the ages, the mercy triumphs over that judgment. The doors swing open like, Oh, I thought they would be closed forever. 
Revelation says they're not closed forever. So I, he just puts them into, into order. Um, penultimate and ultimate. Penultimate means second last. And what's his name? Um, uh, McLaren has a good book called that. It's called uh, The Last Thing and The Thing After That. <laughs> the last thing is the door is shut and you are excluded. And the thing after that is the door is open and you're invited. And I'm like, I can live with that. Um, but also, who wants to go through that kind of judgment? Just because it's yeah. not eternal conscious torment in a lake of fire doesn't mean it's a very, very bad thing to be avoided. Mm. So, yeah. So can yeah. I ask a question just regarding that? Sometimes yeah. in the in the church and... In Christian circles, I I hear this question, you know, like what the the classic question is: Do you know where you're going to go when you die? Right? And there's even there are many believers who spend what seems to me an inordinate amount of time asking the question: I don't know if I'm in or not, and they worry, you know, oh, am I in or am I am, or am I not? Is that is that a worthwhile question to be asking yourself, um, or? Are you failing to trust in the saving grace of Jesus? Yeah, I think I would want to. I would want to um, shift the question for sure because the problem there's problems with the question that that make it about am I in or am I out? Uh, how do I get in and out? And will I go to heaven someday when I die? You know, and I'm, I'm thinking a better question is more along what what we do in twelve step recovery is today. Are, are you surrendered to Jesus today? Because that's eternal life. And tomorrow you'll need to ask that same question. Do I know him? And how do I know him? Through sur willing surrender to his loving care? Do I Am I surrendered to his loving care today? Yes. Okay. If not, then heaven or hell someday is kind of irrelevant compared to the shadow I create in my own life and the other life of others today, if I'm not surrendered to his loving care. And so that's why in the Orthodox world, we, they're like, um, as an evangelical, for me, it was always like, have you said the sinner's prayer? Are you born again? Yes or no. There's a, there was a day when you weren't. And now there is a day when you are. And it's in the Orthodox world. It's more like a journey. And on your journey, are you oriented towards Christ on your journey today? If you are, you have nothing to worry about. If you aren't, why would you expect to feel assurance? <laughs> but if you, if, and so what's the solution? Well, or reorient yourself to Christ again today. And, and so they, um, I think, I think some, you know, Archbishop Lazar, he had a, a evangelical show up at the monastery demanding to know, have you said the sinner's prayer? What, like, why would you ask that of a monk? It's because you think the sinner's prayer determines before and after, in and out, heaven and hell. Mm -hmm. And Lazar's, Lazar's, he doesn't even think like that. So his answer was, um, every pray I, every prayer I pray is a sinner's prayer. Hmm. Like in other words, <laughs> not in terms of his identity, but in terms of, do I need the mercy of Jesus today to experience eternal life? Yes, I do. Okay, then I'll do that. Lord, have mercy. There, I've done it. And then tomorrow I'll, I better do that again because otherwise I will, uh, a shadow will fall over my eyes and I, I won't. Why would I have, why would I have assurance? You won't get assurance from a doctrine. 
or a prayer. Mm-hmm. You get assurance from Jesus as you're walking with him. So when, when people asked the apostles, I'm thinking of uh, Peter in Acts 2, uh, the response to his sermon. Uh, I'm thinking of the the prison guard in Acts 16. When they say, when people say, what must we do to be saved? And their response is, repent and believe. It sounds to me like what you're describing is not a moment in time of repentance, but rather a lifestyle, an ongoing lifestyle of living in repentance and belief. That's true. Although to be fair, right, there's an initial moment of that for some people, right? Mm-hmm. In Acts 2 or the Philippian jailer, mm-hmm. he, he, he had not repented and believed, but now, but now he will. And so, and repentance there is not, can you sign this doctrinal statement uh, um, affirming our Christology and joining our club? It's, will, are you willing to trust Jesus about this? Yes. So, so turn from self-will into trusting Jesus for your life. And does that mean if I do it today, I don't have to trust him tomorrow because I'm in now? Of course not. It means a, it does mean a, a, a life of trusting Jesus. And, and, and the evidence of that is trusting the way he's given us to live with him. So it's not just up here. Repentance is about living the Jesus way on a daily basis as the fruit of actual trust. Yeah. He says, don't believe in me, turn the other cheek. <laughs> it's like, do you trust that actually that's the best way to respond to someone striking you? Um, believe in me, forgive your enemies. Do you actually believe that that's the, that's the best way to live? That's the life. It's a, then it's, so it's a life then, isn't it? So a question then about the judgment. Uh, yeah. And let's say it's the penultimate judgment, I guess. Uh, for those times that we don't turn the other cheek, yep. for those times that we don't believe that the Jesus way of living is the best way of living, yep. are those the things, like, we will face a refining for those moments. I And I'll ask this facetiously because I, I do think that people actually... I've heard people say something similar to this, but if you, let's say you're on one of those days that you are not orientated towards him. Uh, You're, you know, you do big picture believe, but you're on one of those days that you're just not facing Jesus, if you will. Uh, And you get hit by a bus. Does that mean now (laughs) that you are going to go through a greater refinement or a, or uh, a face a more severe hell (laughs) because you were, you know, you kicked the dog the morning that you got hit by the bus or are we all facing a similar experience um, as, as believers in Christ, but who obviously are not living a perfect life and do have days where we kick the dog and are not facing Jesus. Uh, What, what does that process look like? And is it different for those who never confessed belief in Christ is their refinement, their hell, that much more severe? Is it a completely different lineup that they're facing a refinement? Yeah, I, I like your, I like, I like your, um, you're making a good assumption, I think. And that the assumption is this, that we will face judgment and so will everyone. And that's that we will all pass through the same fire. What... What that looks like is a mystery again, but St. Macrina the Younger 
older sister of Gregory of Nyssa and Basil the Great, she imagined it this way, that when we pass through that fire, what determines the severity is the power of our attachments to, to this world. So you could have someone, so it won't, it, it's not about how you were doing the day you died. You know, did I kick the dog that day? That's a great analogy. It's like, um, no, it, uh, the, the severity for believers and unbelievers alike, she imagined it as, as, as to do with these attachments. So, for example, you could have someone who is a, a non, you know, they might even be a, wh whether they're a Christian or not, whatever that means, um, let's say they're a, a drug addict who's like completely attached to their, their, their addiction, um, that can't go with them into the kingdom of God. And that needs, they will need to be cleansed of that. But they also may be so sick of it that it could be very easy to let it go. It will feel like liberation to them. Let's say you have the older brother, right? So the, the younger brother didn't come home to the father's house until he, he let go of his attachments to worldly living because he'd really bottomed out on them. Then he comes to the door and there's like virtually no judgment. Um, the older brother, meanwhile, outside, he's attached to his self-righteousness. He's attached to his inheritance. He's attached to his, he, and so a very powerful attachment. And so maybe for the severity of judgment, you see it in the words of Jesus when he's giving his woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. Wow, you guys, woe to you because the severity of your judgment is, is daunting, you, you know, you should repent. <laughs> um, uh, in, but that could also be, let's say somebody has issues with self-hate and, and you have an incredible attachment to regret. That can't enter the kingdom of God. So what, whatever, um, I, I would think then the severity of judgment is, is relative to, to the power of your attachments to things that cannot enter heaven, which is to say things that cannot participate in love. And so for some, there will be a clenching of their fists and letting go of that is not easy. And hopefully it happens in this life. But Macrina sees it as continuing into the next life where the letting go has not happened yet. It has to happen still. So that can be, that's a, that's a serious reason to look, look at our attachments in this life and let them go here and now. And that's what Mark 9 is talking about, where Jesus is saying, so internalize that fire now because it's good. It will free you now. You'll enter the kingdom of God if you can really let the fire uh, uh, burn those things up. But it's not, it's not easy. So good question. Yeah. Um, we're just about come to the end of our time, but I'm, I wanted to – I've asked lots of questions, but I wondered if there was anything else – specifically regarding Christ's descent into hell that you wanted to address before we wrapped up today? I'll just say one quick thing. Um, that is uh, what in my book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. Um, I, I do go into the various Greek and Hebrew words and I, I, I distinguish them. Hell, Hades, Tartarus. They're not all the same thing. However, when... I would say don't get caught up in that because hell has become a good word to combine the whole thing together. Just to say hell, Hades, Tartarus, the pit, the abyss. Sure, throw it into all that one word like the King James had. 
and then say, Christ conquered it all. That's the point of the Apostles' Creed. Christ entered, he doesn't just enter Hades, he enters hell as a kingdom to conquer. And he has. And everything that you could put under that umbrella term is now under his feet. And that's a beautiful Easter proclamation that I think we need. Poor Steve's been waiting there patiently. Do you have anything to add or share? Oh, he I, I wanted to get your opinion on something I said. And <clears throat> uh, anyway, given the time, I'll be brief. I'm just looking at what I wrote. Um, in terms of, again, the the Church Fathers' understanding and interpretation of Christ's descent, um, that uh, I'm going to look at this, that there was, uh, within this view, that Christ descended into Hades to proclaim total victory, right, to Satan, to death, for everyone. There was the view that Christ broke open the gates and uh, and let everyone out. And then there was the view that he broke open the gates and invited everybody who wanted to come out. It's a bit simplistic, but you understand the, the two. Would you like to comment on that at all? I see. I see both models in the Father's teachings and in the hymns. Mm-hmm. And I see it really strongly, like in terms of um, that everyone comes out is in a lot of the hymns. I mean, hundreds of them. At the same time, you have these other ones where it's like the saints come out. So again, in a sense, they're, it's competing metaphors, but both speak of something true. Um, the, the absolute like sort of the universalist hymns are wanting to say Christ, Christ's victory was total. His, there is nothing, there is nothing more powerful than his resurrection. And everything that was undone in Adam has been redone in Christ. So they want to make that point in those hymns. In the hymns where only some come out, where they're invited out, what what they're trying to, they're doing evangelism there in some Mm. level. And they're saying, are you in Hades now? Whose kingdom do you belong to? What is dominating your life? Is it life or death? You are invited out. Come be one of the saints. Enter the kingdom of God. So it's not about the future. It's about about them treating treating it as... um, as an invitation for those who are right now experiencing the Hades of addiction or poverty or whatever. And so when, when you're, when you're out preaching, um, you kind of do both. You're like, Christ has won for everybody. So please come out. Right. (laughs) So one's ontological and one's existential. Mm -hmm. All right. Just a quick follow-up question to that. Uh, This one just, more out of curiosity than anything. I'm, I'm curious mm-hmm. to know your thoughts. Uh, I'm going to read Matthew 27, 51 and 52 uh, that Dad mentioned last week. Uh, Just then the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split apart. And tombs were opened and the bodies of many saints who had died were raised. They came out of the tombs after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Uh, 
that's a we love as Christians to talk about the temple curtain being torn in two and you know that separation between us and the holy of holies and we're able to enter in so we we talk about that first half of that passage a lot um the second half is kind of creepy and so i'm just curious <laughs> to know what do you think he's talking about what is matthew saying when he says the tombs were open and the bodies of many saints who were who had died were raised uh is that metaphor or is that we won't use the word literal we'll say actual <laughs> It's such a, you're exactly right. It's, it sounds creepy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually know a kid who renounced his faith in Christ because of that verse, because it just sounded so silly and it sounded like zombies to him. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I can't believe this anymore. And I'm like, dude, you're going to lose it over that? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was an excuse, but maybe he was stumbling over his own literalism. That said, I think it actually happened. And I think I think the reason it actually happened was to say when Christ rose, he didn't rise alone. He did not come out of the empty tomb. He came out of death itself. He didn't come out by himself. He came out with a yes. load of people. Now, it does talk about it being saints. Maybe that's because they've already been glorified. Um, and they don't have to pass through a further cleansing judgment. Um, it's like Abraham, um, no, Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They're, they're, now, they're already in some sort of glorified state. So again, I mean, resurrection is really strange. Were they resurrected then or are they resurrected at the final day? Depends which passage you're reading and don't stumble over that. But take, So the idea is always ask this. Not just what does this verse mean, but what is it doing? What is the function of Matthew including that? The function of it. So that that even raises it up. Of, like, do we take that? Do I read that literally or metaphorically? It's like maybe the right the, the better question is what is Matthew up to? Matthew is up to saying that because he is raised, we shall also be raised, and we even know this because there was first fruits immediately. That's my yeah. guess. It's so strange, and it's only in Matthew. You also, in passing, made a point that uh, that I read about a year ago. Uh, I read uh, how in the Western tradition, uh, originally the Roman Catholic, but now Roman Catholic and Protestant, uh, the resurrection is almost invariably portrayed in art as uh, what, Richard Rohr calls touchdown Jesus. He comes out of the, he is the great triumphant. And in the Eastern tradition, their art without exception shows him rescuing and leading those who were captive with him. Quite a yeah. different emphasis. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I do want to say again, like if, even if you've listened to Steve's teaching from last week, I, I, it was so dense. There was so much goodness in it that it, I feel like we owe it to this tradition that has been covered up um, by retributionists. You, you owe it to yourself to listen to, to his teaching again, the whole thing. Uh, um, it's, it's as good a teaching on, on the topic as I've heard. And I, the, the, just the sheer weight of, scriptural evidence for it comes out that we are not making up a doctrine 
out of two or three verses. This is an entire tradition in the Christian church rooted in the scriptures. And so please listen to it again and, um, and, and embrace the victory that is, that is resurrection week. Well, thanks for that, Brad. Hey, would you just uh, tell everybody, uh, we were chatting yesterday, uh, how to find that YouTube about understanding, reading the scriptures uh, with the patristics, with the church fathers? Oh, yeah. So um, on if I talk about this on um, Freedom, I think it's Freedom Ministries. And I'm going to, I'm looking it up myself right now. Freedom Ministries, Jerzak, video. So I'll tell you what, Brad, uh, what we'll do is we'll, I'll get you to text me that link or whatever. Uh, this is a good opportunity for me to plug the podcast itself. If you're watching this on Facebook, uh, you may not realize that we have, we actually repurpose the audio for this and release it as a podcast. And so each week uh, in a season, we release on uh, Thursday, we release a podcast about an hour long uh, with teaching. Uh, and then every three episodes or so, we stop and have a discussion like this. Uh, the advantage with subscribing to the podcast is it's going to show up magically on your phone every week. So you don't have to remember to do that. It'll just show up. Um, you can listen to it. I was going to say while you drive to work. You're not driving to work anymore, but you get the idea. Uh, and the other advantage is that in the show notes, we actually have links to stuff. So today, I, I will absolutely include the link for the uh, this video that Brad, you've just referenced, I'm going to try to find that NT Wright video that you referenced. We'll include a link to that. We're going to include a link to Brad's books. Um, and so I would say head to impactnations.com slash podcast, hit the subscribe button on whichever platform you use, whether it's, uh, you know, iPhone or Android or what have you, uh, so that you can receive the audio every single week as it comes out it'll automatically show up and then there'll be show notes as well with links directly to these resources so you can do further reading or further viewing and things like that uh, and definitely that's that's another great way to catch if you didn't catch or if you need to listen again as brad has just suggested last week's teaching uh, on christ's descent into hell great just sent you both links by the way perfect so there you go so we'll include those in the show notes um Brad, thank you so much for joining us. I, as always, it is just a, a real treat. We so appreciate the way uh, you you bring some historical understanding uh, and just uh, help us read the Bible better. I, I really appreciate the way you do that. So thank you for spending time with us today. Yeah, My thanks pleasure. For thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, Thanks so much for listening, folks. Uh, one last thing I just want to remind you, today's uh, episode was brought to you by our COVID feeding program. Uh, right now, all over the world, because the economies are shut down, uh, people who are day laborers in the developing world, they don't receive a paycheck every two weeks or what have you, and they certainly don't receive unemployment insurance. They are facing literal starvation right now because they have not been allowed out of their homes to work for weeks. Uh, and so we've got feeding programs in Kenya, in Uganda, in India right now. Uh, and we need your help to feed the hungry. Our partners have special permission to leave their homes to go and deliver food to the people who desperately need it. Uh, if you'd like to join that effort, you can feed a family of five for $25 for a week, if you can believe it. So uh, 
rescue a family for a week, 25 bucks. Uh, impactnations.com slash feeding. There's a donation form right at the bottom of the page. It's a tax-deductible gift if you're in Canada, in the United States, or in Australia. Again, impactnations.com slash feeding. Join our effort. Rescue a family. Uh, we would love to partner with you in that. Brad, thanks so much for having, uh, for joining us, for letting us have you. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you again real soon. You bet. <laughs>